Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. The light of the world. It does not say that you will be the light of the world or you must become the light of the world. You are the light of the world. That is what you are. It's a statement of fact. You're made in the image of God. You're alive. You're a man or a woman. In the same sense, you, Christian, are the light of the world. That is a state of being you find yourself in. It's an ontological reality. It's of essence now. And I think the amazingness of this is easy to overlook or to downplay or to take for granted, uh, mainly because we quickly forget who we were. Think of who Jesus is talking to. Uh, He's talking to Peter, that epic screw-up who cut off an ear and denied the Lord three times. To the brother John and uh, James who wanted to call down fire on those they were supposed to be ministering to. Uh, To those of little faith on the Sea of Galilee who were so quick to accuse the Lord of not caring for them in the midst of the storm. To those who for a time abandoned Christ um, to suffer alone at the place of the skull. He's speaking to fallen men. Uh, to fishermen and tax collectors, to lowly and rejected, to uneducated and unrefined sinners and rebels against the law of God who were born children of wrath and were formerly under the sway of the wicked one. He's speaking to men uh, who have been sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers and swindlers, men like you and me. These men are the light of the world. Is that not amazing? That evil men could be the light of the world? If it doesn't amaze you, uh, then you don't realize what you would be without the grace of God. And that is what has made you the light of the world. It is the grace of God, nothing else. Not your heritage, not your good works, not your money or connections. It is the fact that God sent His Son into this dark world to rescue sinners. In Isaiah 9-2, we think of this often as a Christmas passage, but in Isaiah 9-2, it's prophesied that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And that refers specifically to those who Christ first came, but it also clearly applies to us. We all have walked in darkness, And lived in a dark land. And it's a scary thing to walk in darkness. You're unable to know whether your next step is sure or safe. You're unable to know whether you're surrounded by danger. Um, Growing up in southern Indiana, uh, it was popular for people to go to a place called Red River Gorge. Has anyone ever heard of that? Yep, there you go. Nice. Somebody. Uh, It's down in Kentucky. Uh, People go there for camping, for rappelling, uh, for rock climbing. And it's a beautiful area during the day, but it's very dangerous during the night. And there's a sign um, that you see when you enter the park that says, this is verbatim, I found a picture of it, remember it. It says, a dangerous place. That's how it starts. The Red River Gorge is a wonderland of towering cliffs and arches. Thousands of visitors enjoy this spectacular scenery each year and live to tell about it. However, in recent years, There have been numerous accidents in the gorge resulting in deaths. Most fatalities are caused by falling from cliffs around you. Please use common sense and extreme caution. 
a cliff's edge is no place to play or show off. We want, to, want you to enjoy your visit and come back again. Now, if you're from the area, like I am, you know that people don't die in the gorge that often from climbing, actually. Um, it does happen, but most of the deaths occur at night when a camper gets up from their tent to go use the restroom and falls off a cliff. That is what happens. Um, it is, they fall several stories to their death. Uh, when I was in high school alone, I could think of 10 people that died that way in the gorge. Not during the, um, not during the day, but during the night. And this is similar to the situation we find ourselves in as a human race. Uh, God has placed us in a beautiful wonderland, but a long, dark night has come as a result of Adam's rebellion in the garden. We live in a dark and dangerous place now. Now, the darkness here is obviously a metaphor. Life's greatest danger doesn't come from falling off cliffs or robbers in the night. The greatest danger comes from the moral and spiritual darkness that resides in our own hearts. It is the condition that puts us at odds with the holy God that is our main problem. Roman 1 says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Our foolish hearts have been darkened because even though we we knew God, we did not honor him. This is what what it means to be spiritually dark. It means to reject and refuse to worship your creator. We suppress the truth. Why? Because we love unrighteousness. Uh, We prefer it to the truth. In other words, we love darkness as a race now. We love darkness. We love the darkness of sin. We choose to live in a dark world. It's our preference. And that has made us an object of wrath, of the wrath of God. Mankind desperately needs to be enlightened. And mankind knows this is the case. They just don't want God to be the solution They want to be the solution to their own problem. Romans 1 goes on to say, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This continues to be the case. We profess to be wise. We think by the accumulation of knowledge we can solve our problems. There can be no doubt that man's understanding of creation, of God's world, has exponentially grown in the last few centuries. Um, Our understanding of medicine and engineering and space travel um, and so many other things has truly been phenomenal, right? We have learned a lot. Um, But it's interesting to note that a lot of this growth in knowledge can be traced back to two periods in history that we call the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Renaissance, of course, more or less, means rebirth. Mankind knows he needs to be born again. And enlightenment, more or less, means to be removed from darkness. Mankind knows he needs this as well. But what darkness is he being removed from, at least according to him? Is it the darkness of sin? Not at all. Uh, Again, the name of a period of history would be instructive here. 
in, be- in between the so-called classical period, right, with the Greeks and all that, um, and the Renaissance and Enlightenment, is a period of history often referred to as the Dark Ages, right? Sometimes, the Middle Ages. But for, if you were, went to school in the 80s in public school, they were called the Dark Ages for a while. They, they know better than to say that now. But it's a tell. This is an age of history that the secular man doesn't look on fondly. And to be sure, there were some problems with it. You know, Black Plague is something none of us are fans of. Um, not I, anyway. But uh, what the unregenerate man despises most about this period of history is that the Christian church was at the center of society. That God's word, the worship of God, was at the center of society. That's what they think makes it dark. That in their foolish mind is what made it dark, and it's all backwards. It's all backwards. God isn't the problem. Man is the problem. Man isn't the solution. God is the solution. And praise God that he sent a great light into this dark world. That light is the light of the nations. It's Jesus Christ. It's the light that's shown upon us. Jesus is the solution to our problem of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And how has this happened? It's happened by the preaching of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is a light because Christ is at the center, and Christ, according to Hebrews 1, 3, is the radiance of God's glory. The light of the gospel. Shining into a dark world. Remember what God told Paul when he commissioned him as an apostle. He said, I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. And from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God has called us out of darkness by the gospel of his son, Jesus. Christ himself declared the good news to us and he said... I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's how Jesus can look on sinners like Peter, John, James, and you and me and say, you are the light of the world. That's how, um, it's because the light of life has come to us by the grace of God in his son. We shine like the moon because the sun shines on us. Now we're beacons of hope in a dark and dead world. And he goes on to say, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. So who is it that's erected the city on the hill? It is God that has built us as his city. It is he who has placed us there. And who is it that has lit the lamp and placed it on the lampstand? It is God who lit us and set us before the world. The Lord has seen fit to work in this world by means. And more often than not, those means are humans. In other words, God doesn't do all the work himself. He uses people. He sends human messengers. Recall uh, the Great Commission at the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has sent his church on a mission to make disciples of the nation. Jesus is the light of the nations, and we carry him there. You think it means that he's the light of the nations, right? It's, not, it's because we bring him to the whole nation. There's a sense where this is fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. But, but in a greater sense, we are spreading the gospel over the entire globe. What does Acts 1.8 says? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. According to God's providence, we carry the light of the gospel to whatever dark region God has placed us. I mean, think of how amazing this is. This is uh, he's, he's talking to them like remotest areas of the earth, right? Spartanburg. Think how far that is from them, how hard it is to get to here at that time. The gospel's going everywhere. It's amazing. And the gospel will not go anywhere without the means of the church. It will not go anywhere. Much is made of people having dreams and all this. You know, I hear that all the time from missionaries, people having dreams, and that's how the gospel is communicated to them. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying it's not normal, right? It's the ordinary way that the gospel is spread to the the world is through the preaching of God's word in his church. That's how it works. God works through people. Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or good news of good things. The church is the carrier of the gospel. We are the city on the hill. We are the lamp. Christ says you are the light of this world. And we've been sent to preach the gospel. Then verse 15 says, on the lamp, he places on the lampstand. And for the purpose is to give light to all who are in the house. And why did he put us there? It's for a purpose, to give light to the world. God desires to call his sheep to himself. And that is why God has commissioned us with this message. He's calling his elect out of the darkness. And some think that the doctrine of predestination or election, uh, that God has chosen some people to be saved, somehow uh, mitigates against evangelism. And nothing could be further from the truth. It does not follow. In Acts 18, God encouraged Paul to keep preaching the gospel because there were elect in a particular city. In Acts 18, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Don't, don't sweat it. There's people here. Keep doing it. This, this matters. Right? I'll protect you, and there's people who I'm calling out. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Right? He's willing to go through a lot so the elect can hear the gospel and be called out. God not only ordains who will be saved, but also the means by which they will be saved. That means is always the preaching of the gospel. You know, it always is. I mean, 99.9%. I always have to put that 0.9 there for 
what's something I read in some missionary magazine somewhere. But it is generally the preaching of the gospel. Overwhelmingly, I should say. This is wonderful news. Here's why this is good news. People aren't saved because we are articulate and persuasive and witty and clever. They don't convert because you can give them evidence that demands a verdict. Um, It's not your ability to tear down evolution or provide them with manuscript evidence uh, for the New Testament. That's never the deciding factor. People convert because they hear the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, and he works through it to bring his elect to himself. That's very encouraging, right? You don't have to read a hundred books to to be this sophisticated apologist. You need to know the word and preach it. That's what you need to know. Something even a little boy can do. I was an atheist and strongly critical of scientific, the scientific quality of Scripture. And um, I, would, I, I uh, took great joy in stumping my Christian peers. And the thing that I was irritated by most was everything in Genesis, especially the global flood and the ark. I just thought it was ridiculous. The whole thing sounds so silly. And I'll tell you, part of it was because uh, I associated the ark with like childish things, because that's what we decorate our nursery with. Basically a horror story. We decorate our nursery with. Uh, people hid it on that ark, let me in, okay? Lots of people. Um, anyhow, um, it wasn't the evidence regarding the global flood or the fact that you could fit X amount of animals on the ark. Right? There's all sorts of intriguing evidence um, for a global flood. It was the simple preaching of the gospel by some guy at a basketball tournament. Guy just got up there and preached. I had argued and argued with people and read a bunch of books on atheism, a bunch of really bad books. Thankfully, the Internet was just getting going, so I wasn't polluted by ignorant things like Reddit and all their cheesy arguments against Christianity. You can tear through those things like tissue paper. They may seem like a big deal. They're not. Anyhow, someone preached the gospel, and God uh, humbled me, and I bowed to Lord Jesus. It is always the word spoken. It is the means that God uses over and over again. And therefore, we can preach with confidence. We know it works. We know it will draw out God's elect. It is the mean by which God gives light to all who are in the house, the preaching of the gospel. I got really obsessed a couple years ago with aspects of apologetics and philosophy and... um, in that, you know, I'd get in these debates with atheists and people that were unbelievers of one sort or another. And then I was like, you know, what am I doing here? I, I, I'm defeating them often in these areas, and they're not converting. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm just, you know what, repent. You're at odds with God. And, and you have broken this law. You feel guilt. Your conscience is vexed. You know this. You will be held accountable. You need to repent and receive the good news. Right? You can be made right with God. And I saw fruit from that. A lot of fruit from that. And I'll come back to that more in a second, actually. Anyhow, you are the light of the world. Preach the gospel with confidence. Now it says in verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to let your light shine? Is it just a cute little song you sing when you jump rope? Just a little light of mine, you know. Um, in part, it means allowing people to see your good works. Now, it would be real easy to see this as justification for that silly saying to preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Um, 
it's such a dumb saying that I love to trounce it whenever I can um, because the gospel is good news, right? And news is communicated by word, right? So uh, you, you preach the good news and use words when necessary. That's the only way you can preach something is to use words. Um, it can't be preached without them. Now, um, as I was looking at this, though, Martin Luther made an observation on this passage that was actually really refreshing. He says Matthew does not have in mind the ordinary works that people should do for one another out of love. Rather, he's thinking principally about the distinctively Christian work of teaching correctly, stressing faith, and of showing how to strengthen Christians. He goes on to say, The works we are talking about now deal with the first three great commandments, which pertain to God's honor, name, and word. He's saying that believing, confessing, and teaching the truth is good works. Good works can, in a sense, be broken down into two categories. um, Into the works of faith, that is the works directed at God, and the works of love, that is works directed at our neighbors. Just loose categories. Works of faith are the principal works which shine the light into the world. Right? We should always emphasize the importance of publicly believing and confessing the truth as the way God calls people to glorify himself. You want to let your light shine, so don't hide what you believe. Confess Christ at work, in school, um, anywhere and everywhere you gather. This is the main way that people will come to glorify God. And we tend to make this really strict divide between word and deed, right? Truth and action. Now, I do, I do believe, though, that he is speaking of, of our works of love as well. Um, that is the works by which we demonstrate a God-shaped character and attitude. And what are those works? Um, in, our, in our city where Emily and I are from, Cincinnati, there was a guy, he uh, wrote a book called Servant Evangelism. And the whole idea is that, um, you know, by serving people, they would just convert without you ever preaching the gospel. So for years, he went down to Hustler, which is a terrible, terrible place. It's no longer around. But it was downtown in the square in Cincinnati. Eventually, the whole city drove it out. And he would go down there and wash the uh, toilet. Because <laughs> he thought that would uh, cause um, Larry Flint to, uh, to repent. Uh, it did not work, right? Uh, I don't think that's the sort of things he's necessarily talking about. What are they? They're listed just before this passage in the Beatitudes. Here's, here's a sort of works of love. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the sort of attitude you need to have in you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs are the kingdom of heaven. You want to let your light shine. Live like that. Be humble. Mourn over sin. Be meek. Not boastful. Hunger for holiness. Be merciful and kind. Keep a pure heart. Guard your eyes. Make peace quickly. Real peace. Not fake peace. Right? Not the peace where you ignore conflict. But the peace where you solve it. And suffer persecution like our master did. That's the sort of works that should be evident in a Christian's life. That's the sort of attitude 
God will use the demonstration of this character to create opportunities to share his gospel. People still won't just be converted because they see your life. But it will drive them to talk. It will drive them to ask you questions. It will provide you opportunities to say it's because of Jesus. It's because God pulled me out of this wicked world and gave me a new heart and new appetites. So why am I preaching this on the first day of a new year? There's three reasons I want to give you. So first, it's always good to be reminded that you are the light of the world and have been given a commission to preach the gospel. Um, evangelism is often left to the professionals, so to speak. But it really is the entire church's responsibility. I've seen Reformed people try to create very complicated arguments to say, no, evangelism is only given to the officers of the church. And if you are persuaded by that, I can show you why that's just silly and not true. Um, it's not true, right? You are the salt in the light of the world. There is a sense where there is a proper um, official preaching that goes out from the pulpit. No one's denying that. Um, but we all are called to testify of the light. We're all called to testify to Jesus, to confess him before men, to give a reason for the hope that's in us, right? We're all called to do that. You must be an evangelist. You must be, right? Like everyone wants a way out of this. Now, we all have different giftings and different strengths, um, and that's why evangelism is ultimately a, um, a, a community project. Some of you are very talkative, right? Some of you. Um, and good at, um, at explaining things to people. Other of you are, have been blessed with uh, just a kind, warm heart. People are drawn to you. You know, um, my friend Aaron Jones, some of you met him. Aaron Jones connects with every person he can find. Usually the weirdest people he can find, you know, some strange Russian mathematician, you know, that's in America for a week. And he calls me up and says, hey, let's go. It's true, right? Is it not true? Um, and he's, hey, let's go hang out. And he, he brings me together because Aaron uh, has a little trouble getting to certain aspects of the gospel. And he knows that if we get together, that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to go there right away after we have some interesting discussion about Putin or whatever. But Aaron's got that gift, and I have this gift, and we come together as a church, and we do a work, right? You all have different places to plan it, but you're all called to, um, to make disciples, right? That is a body work that we accomplish. So that's the first reason. So I really want to exhort you to be that way. Second is more specific to our church. Actually, the second and third. Our church has gone through some remarkable changes over the last few years, but especially in 2016. We've got some people traveling, but uh, when I came to this church, there wasn't that many kids. And now, there are kids everywhere, right? There's just a ton of kids. And a lot of us are younger families, and we have our hands full, right? We're trying to educate our kids. Uh, we're trying to get from one event to another event. Um, we're tired, right? Uh, I didn't stay up to midnight last night because I don't care. Too tired. Too tired to do it anymore. I'm past that stage of my life. It's arbitrary anyway. Whatever. Um, yeah. But we're tired. And, we're, and this is a stage of life where we're very busy. And if we're going to be faithful, it's, it's, it's going to tap us. And it will be easy to use that as an excuse to insulate ourselves from non-believers and nominal Christians. Right? We are going to, because that is a God-given responsibility. But brothers, we have all these things. They've been given to us. And you don't get to pick and choose. 
right? We're always going to fail, and thank goodness for grace. But you need to make an intentional effort this year to be involved in the lives of unbelievers, and here in the South, especially nominal Christians. It's very rare that we find someone that straight out says that they're not a Christian. But there are people where the fruit is greatly lacking, and we find their faith suspect. Well, those are the sort of people uh, you need to bring into your life. The, the easiest thing to do is invite them to church, right? People seem to think there's something wrong with that. Invite them to the church. We'll preach the gospel to them. We'll teach them God's word, right? God's word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It'll pierce to their heart. It does its work. Invite them to a Sunday service or to Triple B or the Titus Two Women um, or, or, or a few, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get some of the neighbor kids to come to contenders this year. I mean, get them in here to this building, and we'll, we'll be faithful to them. We'll help you in your work. But also, bring them into your homes. Practice real hospitality, which isn't being polite and say, hey, we should get together sometime, and never, ever, ever getting together. Right? Real hospitality is bringing people into your home. Eat meals with them. Show them the reality of a Christian life, which are sinners being transformed by grace. They need to see you guys get a little upset at each other, husband and wife, and then resolve it in a good godly way. They need to see people discipline their kids in a way that honors God. God will use that to uh, challenge them to think about the, what's going on in their life. Bring them into your homes. Be intentional. If you're not intentional about it, it's just not going to happen unless it's a, a strong area of gifting in your life. And that's very rare for most of us. Third, third reason is I want to remind you because this passage really stresses that we're different from the world, right? Darkness, light, death, life. That while I want to remind you that while we're different from the world, and the world finds us weird, that isn't a justification for being weird in a worldly way. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. Our weirdness, that is the contrast between light and dark, isn't so much about form, style, and method of living. It's about Christ-formed character. That is what's being stressed in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes and through the whole thing. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean. In Bloomington, where I, where I lived for a long time, Ben was there for a while, it's a very extreme place because of uh, IU. Um, and there's a lot of young women and young men that come into the church I used to be at and, and are challenged on what it means to be feminine and masculine in a godly way. When a lot of young ladies are rejecting feminism... What we first see is um, they start dressing in a more obviously feminine way, or they grow their hair out or something. And there was one young lady, a very proud and brash young lady, who uh, made a big deal about not wearing pants anymore, you know, that she only wore dresses. And she thought that was the essence of femininity. And she told me um, that there's only two types of pants, uh, man pants and sexy pants. That's what she said. I told her she had obviously forgot about the third category, sexy man pants, um, which she laughed about. But I started to press her that the point is that she was more concerned about clothing, which does matter, right? That does reflect modesty, than her character. But she was loud, brash, and proud. And ended up leaving that church in a huff and a puff, causing all sorts of trouble. I'd rather her wear pants and have a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what I'd rather. Because one will lead to the other. 
but not necessarily, you know, the opposite way around. And I, obviously, we, I don't have a problem with pants. That's not what this is about. Don't take that away. You always hear, like, months later, remember that time you preached that sermon against pants? No, I don't. Did not say that. Remember that time you didn't listen to what I said? I do. It was a time I talked about pants. Um, be modest, right? You see this with guys. They think being manly is cigars, shooting guns, growing a beard. Being manly is taking responsibility for others. I don't care how much you can bench. Do you love your wife? Do you rebuke her? Do you correct your children? Do you preach the word to them? Are you providing? Are you working hard? Take that silly stuff somewhere else. We want real manhood. Then again, I don't care if you shoot guns and smoke cigars. It's neither here nor there. We're looking for character. People are always more interested in external change than internal change because it's easier. And as I look at this congregation every Sunday, I see one that looks a lot more like me and my wife. And we are particular about our food, our health, our education methods, our birthing methods, our politics, and so forth. And these things do matter, but we must be careful to keep these things in their proper place. We cannot allow derivative principles to become the central thing. For example, Emily and I got into home birth while we're church planning. And all the young couples in our church would ask us why we did home birth. And we would tell them. And before you know it, all the young couples were only having home births. One day I'm somewhere. Someone asked me what church I go to. I say, Seven Hills. And she says, is that the home birth church? I said, no. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not our principle. That's not, that's not in our confession or our catechism. We believe it. But that's not what I want to be known about. I want to be known as a church that preaches repentance and grace and scripture and the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, but one that caused people to live lives of holiness. And I've seen people make anti-abortion the gospel. I've seen people make education methods the gospel. I've seen people make racial reconciliation the gospel. People that make food the gospel. I've seen people make whatever secondary thing of, of, of different values and importance the gospel. And brethren, what we win them with is what we win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win them with food, you uh, you win them to food. If you win them with entertainment, you'll win them with entertainment. In Cincinnati, there was two churches duking it out, two mega churches. And they would always try to have crazier and crazier Sunday services. Like sometimes trains would come out onto the stage or they'd have motorcycles out there. And people would bounce from church to church. Because what they were looking for is something entertaining. That's what they've been drawn there. And if they can't keep the entertainment up, which is hard to do, right? You can't just, there's some point where you, what are you going to do? You know, you only can do so much. And they go back and forth. That's what they've been won to. Now, if we win them with the gospel of Christ, that's what we win them to. That's what we're trying to do. That has to be the driving message of Trinity in 2017. You have to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Preach the gospel, right? Demonstrate Christ-formed character to your neighbors, to your, your family members, to everyone around you. Bring them into your home. Bring them into this building. And let your light shine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us out of the darkness and to the wondrous light. That you are freeing us more and more from our sin and, and making us into the image of your Son. God, help us to love our neighbors. Help us to keep things in a proper place. Help us to trust your gospel 
that it is power and it cannot be stopped. Your church will not be stopped. You will call your people to yourself through preaching. I pray that we would preach with confidence then, that we would live with a confidence that comes from your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness in 2016, and we know you will be with us to the very end of the age. And we praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.